church as we gather today. Y'all need to seriously pray about those visas. Mine's one of them that ain't there. And uh, I don't think Megan wants to do 12 extra sermons. So uh, we really need that thing to come through uh, this week. And so uh, as we get into the Word uh, this Sunday, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So if you'll turn there with me, we're continuing to look at the life of King David. And uh, as you know, if you've been here over the last several weeks, that we're in a, a really a crossroads for David. This is one of those moments that he probably could never have imagined would happen to him again. We know that in David's life, he was called at a young age to be king. Once that calling was placed and he was anointed by the prophet to be king, I'm sure in David's mind he thought that it wouldn't be that long before God fulfilled the plan that he had for him. But as we know, King Saul turned against King David. And as we know, King David spent most of his early years in exile that he was trying to run away from the king who was trying to kill him, waiting on God's timing, waiting on God's plan. We know that, the Nath, or that uh, as David was waiting to be king, that eventually Saul was taken away from the throne. David took the throne. And as David took the throne, we see that David just really uh, was living this life where, where God's hand was upon him. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. And he walked closely with the Lord. It's what God saw in him when he drew him to be king. If you remember, he looked at David and he told uh, Samuel and he told also his father and his brothers, now, you know what? God looks to the heart of man. Man looks to the outside, but God looks at the heart. And so he was to be king. He finally got to the throne. He began to defeat the enemies of Israel. God had promised them a land. And as they went and as that land was expanding and victory after victory was being won because of, of God using David and those mighty men that were around David, it looked like everything was perfect for him. It looked like really that he had life by the horns. It looked like everything was, a, was just going uphill. And we know that David suddenly revealed to the world and it became evident something that was going on in his heart and that he had a lust issue, a lust problem. It showed itself in the illicit relationship that he had with a woman named Bathsheba. She was married to a man that was a friend to King David, a warrior of King David's. They would have known each other. And this was a loyal man to the king, a loyal man to the country. But David wanted his wife and that's exactly what he took. And in order to cover up the affair, remember the story was very tragic, that she became pregnant. David knew that he needed to do something so that it wasn't found out what happened and that he took this man's wife. And so literally he tries to, to make it seem that the husband got her pregnant, but it never worked out his schemes and he ended up having to kill the husband. Now he didn't have to, he chose to kill Bathsheba's husband. Because of the sin that he committed, both adultery and murder, if you remember, the story says that God came along through the prophet Nathan and revealed his sin. If you remember, David was repentant. David stood before the Lord and he sought the Lord's forgiveness. And the Lord's words to David was that, you know what, your sins are forgiven, he said, and you will not die. What grace, what mercy was extended to King David. But we also learned about the fact that even forgiven sin for believers in Christ, even forgiven sin for those that are seeking to obey Him, even though we repent, even though we come back and, and we seek God's face for restoration, there's consequence even for forgiven sin. And what a grave consequence David understood uh, was coming his way. He didn't know that some of what was going to happen was that he would lose sons. By the time all of this is over, he will have lost 
his first four sons as a result of the choices that he made, the consequence of the choices, the things that happened in his own family because of decisions that he made, because we know that the sins of the father, many times they're passed right down to the son. It doesn't mean that God gives the consequence to the children of fathers uh, because of their sin, but what it means is dads, those little eyes are watching. Moms, those little eyes are watching, and the life we live is the life that they most likely will choose to live in. So his family begins to fall apart. If you remember the prophet said, the sword's not going to leave your family. There's going to be tension. There's going to be battle. There's going to be warring inside of your own family. We knew that he would lose those four sons. We've been talking about that. But we also find that he would be humiliated. And little did he know that the humiliation would come from inside his family. The destruction that is going to occur in David's life is coming from within his own choices and the choices of his own children. And that's kind of where we are in this story. That Absalom now has let this hatred, this resentment, this desire for revenge. He's mad at his father. Why is he mad at his father? Because his father didn't do anything when his sister was raped. His first son raped Absalom, his sister. Her name was Tamar. If you remember the story, it was horrible. It caused such division in the family. Everybody's looking to David to see what is David going to do when this oldest son who would be king did this horrible act to his half-sister. What was going to happen? Well, literally nothing happened. Literally, David did nothing to stop the rage and the anger that was building in his family. He never called him to repentance. He never called him to forgiveness. And after two years, Absalom took matters into his own hands, killed his brother. And you remember, he had to go off for two years into hiding. He came back, David restored him, and here we are in this story. Once restored, Absalom says, I'm going to take the throne. He plots against the king. And now there is about to be a battle that is going to ensue. Now, if you're a student of history, you've heard the term Pyrrhic victory. A Pyrrhic victory is something that we, we don't hear that term very often, but it's been around for a long, 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 long time. It is used to describe a battle where whoever it is that is victorious has paid such a cost for that victory that it's like it's no victory at all. I got a picture that I, I gave them to put up this morning. That's Pyrrhic victory right there. The dog might be grabbing that bird. He might get that bird, but what's it going to cost him? It's going to cost him his life. Well, that's what's going on with King David. When you think about the war that is going on inside his family, there is someone usurping the throne, and that someone is his son. So when they go to battle and they do war, if David loses, listen, Absalom most likely will have to kill his father and will likely kill other family members, like Joab, like Abishai who are siding with David, if David wins the battle, then guess what's going to happen? Most likely Absalom is going to have to die. And when you look at it from David's perspective, what he is facing is a lose-lose situation. There will be no winners. The greatest military minds will tell you over and over and over that there really is no victor in wars. Nobody wins. And this isn't going to be any different. Where we find ourselves in chapter 16 this morning is a crisis. Because David is fleeing. He's left Jerusalem. He's got his family with him. He's got his friends with him. Those who stand around him, those mighty men of David, those Philistines 
who have been faithful to King David even in a greater way than those of his family and those of Israel. And as he's running into hiding, some things begin to occur in chapter 16 that really add insult to injury. That, that what you're going to find is that King David is barely probably holding on by a thread with all the thoughts that are running through his mind of what all of this means and how all of this is going to end. And in the midst of all of that, he is going to be criticized. He's going to be lied about. Someone's going to use deceit and treachery to try to get their way while David is confused and trying to figure out how he's going to survive this. People are going to take advantage of him. You see, here's what's true in life that we have to remember. Times of crisis, you know what they actually do for us? They're beneficial to us as believers. Another way to say it is suffering has its place in a believer's life. I always encourage the church, be careful that you don't pray your way out of suffering because suffering is the way that God grows you. Like a tea bag that's been placed in hot water, until you place something like a tea bag into hot water, that which it truly is will never come out until it's placed in that water. You won't know your character until you go through suffering. You won't know what's really in your heart until you get placed into circumstances that you can't control. Circumstances that kind of leave you out of your mind. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. And you start to focus once again on the only person that can change anything, God. The only person who can help you in that moment, God. And I want you to know that God doesn't put us in these circumstances so that He knows who we are. He already knows. He puts us in that circumstance so that we see and learn who we are in difficult stages and places and circumstances in our life. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the life of David today. We're going to learn things about David but we're going to learn things about everybody that is surrounding him in this story. Because if there's one thing I want you to remember this morning is that crisis shows our true colors. Crisis always shows our true colors. And let's look at what is revealed in the lives of the people that are in this story this week and see what it means for us as believers in Jesus Christ and what it teaches us. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. It says, Now when David had passed a little bit beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, a 100 clusters of raisins, and a 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, Why do you have these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom to my fa of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord, the king. The first character I want to look at this morning and see the true colors of his heart is Ziba. And I want you to see with me this morning Ziba's deceit. 
Now you look at the story, what we're reading so far, and you say, where is the deceit? I just see that Zeba's coming forward with a story that he wants to tell about what's going on with Mephibosheth. And in the midst of telling the story of where Mephibosheth is, he's just trying to bless the king. He comes with donkeys. He comes with fruit. He comes with drink. He comes with all these things. He's just trying to be a blessing to the king. But I want you to realize with me this morning that there's more to stories than sometimes what we see on the surface. Have you ever been wrong about somebody? Have you ever thought that you knew and understood a situation, but you came to realize that you've only heard one side of it? If you've ever done marriage counseling, you know full well what I'm talking about. Because I tell people all the time, it does me no good for you to come talk to me without your spouse. You know why? Because when you're by yourself, you're going to tell me some stuff. And then I'm going to go and meet with your spouse, and they're going to sit down and guess what? They're going to tell me some stuff, and then I'm sitting there in the middle going, are these two people living in the same house? Are they living on the same planet? Do they understand one another? Do they understand what's really going on? Because it's like you have two completely different stories, and you spend the first weeks of marriage counseling just trying to figure out what's true. David has an impossible situation on his hands with Ziba. He's running for his life, and this man approaches him. And let me say of Ziba, let me just get it out there. Ziba, what he is and what we're going to find in chapter 19 is that Ziba, he's a politician. Ziba is a manipulator. If you remember who Ziba is from the stories that we dealt with a few weeks ago when we looked at Mephibosheth early on in 2 Samuel, Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul. He was the He was the son of Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was loved by King David. David said that I'm going to continue, regardless of what happens to Saul and his kingdom, I'm going to bless Jonathan, and I'm going to bless his family. And remember, Jonathan, his father, and his other brother, they died in battle. And at some point, King David said, where are the descendants of Saul? I want to bless them. Most had died off. Most had run away. And he found out that, you know what? There was still a son of Jonathan that was alive. Why? Because one of the servants scooped him up when the kingdom fell and started running off with him. Remember, she tripped, she fell, the son became crippled. And David said, I want to see that son. And they went and found him and they brought him back to the king. And remember, Mephibosheth thought he was probably dead. But what he found was grace from David. What he found was love from David. And David said to him, listen, I promised your father that I would bless his household. And from now on, listen, you get all that was your father's. And not only that, I want you to come and you have a seat at my table. When my generals meet, when my family meets, you have a seat and you can come and be like family to us. Do you think that made a difference in Mephibosheth's life? This grace that had been received. And Ziba in the story, he was the one that knew about Mephibosheth. He was one of the servants of Saul. And David turned to uh, Ziba and he said, Ziba, listen, I want you to take care of Mephibosheth. I want you to handle and be over the whole household, the finances, the land, everything else. This young man obviously was going to need help with his disability. And he says, you're going to care for him. Are we understood? And of course, Ziba says, yes, sir. And now suddenly Ziba has come to David. And he comes with a story that, you know what? I wanted to come and bless you, but Mephibosheth didn't want to come. 
You know why? Because Mephibosheth thinks that you and Absalom are probably going to kill each other in this battle. And when all of it's over, the throne is probably going to go back to Saul. And he is the heir who's waiting for the throne in Saul's family. And he sells David a story of betrayal. You see, things aren't always as they seem when you just get one side of the story, right? I I loved a story I read years ago. (laughs) It was about the town busybody. Every small town has one of these people. Many of us can probably stop and think of a person right now who likes to tell the town gossip. Well, her name was Betty, and she was the self-appointed gossip, the self-appointed supervisor of all of the town's morals. She was always sticking her nose in everybody's business. A lot of the residents of the town, they didn't really appreciate all her activities, but most of them feared her enough and the words that she would speak against them that they just kept silent. However, one day she made a mistake and she ran across a man whose name was Ted. And one day in front of all of the townspeople, as everybody was gathering and talking in the center of town, she made an accusation against Ted, this local man. And she said that, you know what, I believe Ted's an alcoholic. And when everybody said, why would you think that Ted is an alcoholic? She says, well, you know what? I drive through the strip mall every other day. And every time that I'm there, you know what I see? I see his truck parked out there near the alcohol store. We can imagine Ted's offended and probably rightly so. And Ted is standing there and he just stares at the woman for a moment and he ends up just walking away without saying a word. But Ted wasn't done because later that evening, you know what he did? He drove over to the woman's house and just parked his truck in her driveway and walked away. You see, things aren't always as they seem, are they? David didn't ask a question. David assumed that Ziba had good intentions, and he said to Ziba, you know what? Then you take all of Saul's goods and all of Saul's land and all of Saul's inheritance, and you keep it for yourself. At the end of the day, that's what Ziba wanted. We find in chapter 19 that in fact... When King David is restored to the throne, he runs into Mephibosheth and he looks at Mephibosheth and rightly so, he says, where were you basically? When I needed you, I was there for you. I was there when you needed me. Where were you, Mephibosheth, when it looked like the throne was going to be taken from me? And Mephibosheth looks at him and he says, King, listen, I wanted to be there. It was my idea to take all those goods to you with that donkey and with all those goods to take for your men and for you as you were on the run. But as I was planning to get ready to go, obviously he needed Zeba to be able to go on a trip like this. And while he was preparing to go himself, Zeba took all those goods and left without him. Of course, Zeba's going to try to defend himself. And it's interesting because King David, not knowing who's telling the truth, he looks at both of them and says, well, you know what? Then let's just do this. I'll take half the inheritance. Zeba gets half. Mephibosheth, you get half. And you know what Mephibosheth did? He renounced the half that was his and he said, I don't want anything but for you to know basically that I'm loyal to you. I don't need the inheritance. What came out of Ziba's heart when put in this moment of crisis with David was deceit. Let's look at another character 
Beginning in verse 5, listen to what it says. It says, When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul. So this is another one of Saul's descendants, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And he came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his hand and at his left. The Shammai said when he cursed David, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. David's day just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? As he's leaving town, he's confronted by a man who just simply starts cussing him. Now, number one, it's not a good idea to cuss the king, is it? I mean, the guy's a little foolish, but in his mind, you can understand what he's thinking. He's thinking he's not king anymore. Absalom is in Jerusalem. He's on his way out. There's nothing he can do to me. We can kind of understand what's going on in Saul's family. There were no doubt people that were very bitter because of what happened to King Saul. You can imagine that that tribe, that family, when Saul was king, there was a blessing that came along with being associated with King Saul. And all of that was gone. And in a moment, just like what happened with Mephibosheth, many of them went into hiding. Many of them left all that they had. Why? Because they were worried that King David would do what other kings do. They didn't realize he was a different king. He had a heart after God. He wasn't going to lead the way the kings of the world led. And while they thought he would go and devastate Saul's family, he didn't actually do that. It's amazing to me the accusation that Shammai brings onto David's character. You see, he's bitter. Where Ziba was deceitful, Shammai is showing the bitterness that has been raging in his heart. He actually accuses David of the bloodshed of the house of Saul. Now, if you go back and remember the stories as we've gone through them, who was responsible for the downfall of Saul's throne? It was Saul. It wasn't David. If you remember, David was patiently willing to wait for God to anoint him when he was ready, to put him on the throne when he was ready. Never did David try to take the life of Saul. Never, did. In fact, more times than not, remember, he had opportunity to take his life, but he chose not to. David was a man that was waiting on the Lord. He never killed Saul. He never killed Saul's sons. There was no record of bloodshed that occurred in the house of Saul because of King David. And yet here is this man. What is he saying? All of this is occurring to you because of what you did to King Saul. Now what's interesting is, we often like to speak for God, don't we? We like to speak into people's circumstances as if we know what God is doing and why God is doing it. You ever hear pre preachers get on the news? Only fools do this, like when a hurricane comes up. And they'll say, you know what, God sent that hurricane to destroy all of New Orleans because of the sin. Well, listen, if God was going to send hurricanes to wipe out sinners, He'd just have to send one big one. 
It's the same thing that happened to Job with his friends, remember? He was suffering, and what did all of his friends say? They presumed to know why he was suffering, and they kept telling Dave, or they kept telling Job, you know what? This is happening because you've sinned greatly. Your punishment is in equal regards to what sin you've committed. And Job's sitting there saying, listen, I haven't committed any sin. This is not because of something that I have done. But they presumed to know what God was doing and why God was doing. Listen, the reality is, this was discipline for David. The reality is, his throne was being threatened because of sin in David's life, but it wasn't for the reason that this man thought that it was. And his bitterness had overtaken him. The bitterness of Shammai, the bitterness of many people in the house of Saul was beginning to show itself. And what is so strange about this man? And it's really not strange. It's, it's the way we are as human beings. Have you ever noticed that most people like to kick a person once they're down? This was his advantage. This was his moment to take advantage of the suffering of King David. He was one of those people that's going to kick you once you're down like a vulture. He smelled death, and he went swooping in and began to curse the king, began to throw rocks at the king. This man was destroying whatever shred of dignity and confidence that David had left. Let me say this, and I want you to write this down. I want you to remember this. That for any of us, and hear me when I say this, for any of us that rejoice when a leader falls, it says more about us than the leader. Why would we ever rejoice when somebody falls? There's something that it says about our lostness, not our likeness to Christ. But our lostness, our, our human condition, our sinful bent, when we rejoice at the fall of another person, it ought to break our heart when people fall. We ought to have compassion. It ought to break our hearts and not make us rejoice when we see another person suffering. But this guy, that's exactly what he's doing. He is rejoicing. He's so bitter. He's so angry. He's rejoicing at the demise of David. You'll find that in the life of David, he lived the complete opposite of what Shammai is doing here. When Saul fell, he wept. When Jonathan fell, he wept. When Ishbosheth fell, he wept. Over and over, he lamented even for those people who had it out for him. That's why we say that David was a man after God's own heart. It's a compassion and a love and a patience, mercy and grace that is rarely seen today. Spurgeon said it well when he said that only a coward strikes when a man is down. And that's exactly what we find him doing. But there's something amazing about David here that I want to talk about. When you finish the story there about Shammai, look at it with me and look at verse 9. It says, then Abishai, he was the son of Zariah. So this is David's nephew, 
the brother of Joab, if you remember, he's one of the generals that is family in David's army that has traveled with him among all these other Philistines. And Abishai, listen to his reaction. When this man does what he does, Abishai, I mean, he, he makes no bones about it. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Okay, so what's Abishai's answer? Dude, you don't talk to the king like that. Let me go kill him. Now, before we get too critical about him, in most situations, in all of Israel and every other nation around the world, you, you don't necessarily get to throw rocks at the king, right? To curse the king. In that day, in most circumstances, that was pretty much ensuring your death. So it's not out in left field that he would say, listen, I can take care of this king. I, I mean, because I want you to see for a minute that while the th rocks are being thrown, what is Abishai having to do? What is Joab having to do? What are all the mighty men having? They're getting between the rocks and the king, right? And they keep getting pelted and they keep getting pelted. This dude won't quit cussing at him and kicking dust on him. And Abishai is like, I can stop this really quick. But listen to David's response. It really is amazing. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? So he's talking about Abishai. What do I have to do with you, Abishai? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite, let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Number one, David is saying, listen, I got bigger fish to fry. This guy isn't my issue. Where's my issue? That my son has usurped the throne. That now we're about to ensue in a battle that's going to cost everybody so much that nobody's going to win. He, he's almost, in a way, saying this is nothing compared to the bigger picture of what is happening in life. But then he turns around and he simply says this. Remember for the last several weeks we've been saying that David has this ability to take his life and to put his life in God's hands because he says, who am I to tell him to be quiet? What if God told him, to curse me. Now, I want you to see why David would say that. Because David, the Bible tells us, he said it in the Psalms, we talked about it a few weeks ago, that when David thought about his sin, he said, my sin is ever where? It's ever before me. He, he, he walked with an awareness that if it weren't for the grace of God, he would have nothing, he would be nothing. If it wasn't for God's grace, he would not have the throne. That day when he cheated with Bathsheba and had sex with her, and when, listen, when he killed her husband, do you realize that the law said he could what? Even though he was king, he, he could be killed. He could die. And it would have been justice, and it would have been right, and it would have been good. However, God looked at him and said, I'm not through yet. I have forgiven you, and I'm not going to kill you. And David's looking at this situation, and he, I mean, because think about it. Most of us have been at this place in our life at some point when we don't really know what God is doing. Isn't that a frustrating place to live? But God loves to put us there so that we have to go back and hold tight to verses like, trust the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on what? What you can understand. 
He loves to leave us there. He loves to put us there where we have to say, Lord, then I'm just going to give you my life and I'm going to trust you with my life, my death, my things, my family, my everything. I just put it in your hands because I don't understand what you're doing. So all I have left, all I can do is say, Lord, I trust you. It's hard listening to all the accusations that come at us in life, isn't it? Criticism. It says a lot about us in our spiritual maturity when we are able to handle properly criticism. Do you know that sometimes God speaks through the criticism of others? Do you know that sometimes there are lessons about ourselves that we can learn even if 90% of what a person says is not true? Do you know that part of what he said was true? Did David have blood on his hands? Yeah, the blood of Uriah. Was all of this a result of that? Yes, it was. And here is David. You know what he's saying? How do I know that God isn't telling him to say that? Because David's saying, listen, that's what I deserve. He may not fully understand the story. He has bits and pieces of it wrong, but you know what the truth is? That's exactly right. I am a sinner who doesn't deserve this throne. You see how different that is from the position that most of us take? In all of our sin, we'll still look at God like He owes us something. Like we deserve it. And David, with that heart of his that God has given him that, that heart that says, you know what, I place my life in the Father's hands. Because let me tell you, the only way you're ever going to get over critical spirits in your life where they don't actually destroy you is when you do what David did right here, that ultimately he quit looking at Shammai and he put his eyes squarely on God. Because you got to learn that at night when you put your head down on the pillow, you will either lay there restless, without peace, without joy, wrecked emotionally and spiritually because of the, all the things that people say. Or you will learn to put your head down on a pillow at night and go back to that place that you understand that the only voice that matters in my life, the only one whose words are true are God. And I'm going to learn to listen to that voice. And I'm going to put all of it in His hands. God, You show me where they're right. God, You show me where they're wrong. God, You show me what Your will is. God, You show me what Your plan is. And ultimately, you know what He says? He's going to say, listen, at the end of the day, God took me off this throne and God can put me right back on it. And I'm going to leave that up to God. Not Shammai, not Ziba. He has the chance to do Abishai's way. But in verse 12, he just simply said, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shammai went along the hillside. Still, think about this. David keeps walking. 
He's walking parallel to David, throwing rocks, cussing, kicking up dust. And said, finally, the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary. And he refreshed himself there. I think what we see in David here is so commendable. At this point in his life, he isn't sure what God is doing, but he is willing to wait and see how God moves. He didn't try to silence Shammai. He didn't close his ears to the unpleasant and the critical words. He was willing to hear what God might say to him through this cursing critic. And David knew something that we have to know. That all that mattered is that David would do in that moment what was right and he would let God take care of his future. Did you hear me what I said right there? That he determined to do what was right in that moment and he would trust God with his future. Folks, that's all day, every day what we have to do. Maybe you've made a royal mess of life like David has. You know what it boils down to? How does God see you? Because the world is going to be very ready to tell you how they see you. Worthless, useless, fool. All the words they're going to heap upon you because of the mistakes and the choices and the sins and the past that you have, they're going to heap it on you like you wouldn't believe. But the ultimate question isn't what does the world say, it's what does God say? And aren't you glad that when we consider how does God feel about me as a sinner? Because in that moment when we're hearing all those other voices, His voice matters. What He says about us, that's all that matters. And aren't you glad that the Scriptures bear out over and over and over again that you know what, sinner? I have good news for you. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. That's the gospel. Those of you sitting out there asking the question, how in the world do I know that God loves me? The Bible answers that. In that same chapter, Romans chapter 5, it says, in this God demonstrated His love for us. He showed us His love. How? In that while we were yet sinners, that's when He died for us. Folks, don't ever get over that good news. It is not a license to sin. That good news is not meant to leave us in our sin. It's meant to free us from sin. If we cling to Christ, if we cling to the cross of Christ, if we trust this gospel, He will free us from our sin. He will take away the penalty of sin because it's been placed on Christ and He has paid the price for our sins. And there is a day coming, sin will have no place in our life. He did all of that for sinners. For sinners. I'm sure everybody wants to yell at David, this is the end for you. And David is saying, well, that's what you say. I'm waiting to hear what God has to say. Don't let everybody else tell you when the end of your story is. Give God a chance to do what God can do. Because let me tell you something. 
The God that I serve, he raises dead things back to life. I don't care how dead it looks. It can be four days dead like Lazarus, right? And what does he say? Come forth, and guess what he does? You say, well, that man was born blind from the beginning of life. What hope does he ever have to see? Well, let me tell you something. It makes a difference when Jesus enters. And it doesn't matter what he's been. It doesn't matter what you think about what he's been. All that matters in that moment, if God wants to give sight, God can and will give sight. And so don't close the door just because the world told you to close the door. You let God keep that door open or shut. It's his decision. God wasn't finished with David. He greatly sinned. But isn't this the gospel? He was greatly loved. <laughs> Let's talk about Abishai a minute. We see Ziba's deceit and Shammai's bitterness as their true colors. Abishai, I just want you to see his loyalty. It may have been misguided some. But the reality is, he was defending his king, wasn't he? At the end of the day, his job was to defend the king. And here is this man yelling and screaming and cussing and throwing rocks at the one who God says is king. And we see this, this loyalty with him. Because he wasn't a, a young kid, he was a grown man. And not just a grown man, but he was a warrior, just like David was a warrior. And he wanted to stand and do what was right and what was good. He cared about justice. Listen, he acted in the way that most of us would have wanted someone to act in that circumstance. If we were David in that moment, probably the difference between us and David is we'd have told Abishai, yeah, why don't you get about that? Why don't you go take care of that for me? But David led him a better direction. For all of his zeal, he was lacking an understanding of wisdom and what God would have him to do. And David thankfully spoke into his heart and life. And rather than asking him to draw blood and then make Shammai's words true about the bloodshed of Saul's family, he told him, don't do it. We know what it's like. I, I <laughs> story of the mother that ran into her son's bedroom because she just kept hearing these blood-curdling screams, and when she throws open the door, she realizes why he's been screaming, because his two-year-old sister has his hair in her hand, and he's, she's just pulling at it as hard as she can. Of course, the mother, being a good mother, walks over and tries to pry the hair from her hands and kind of tells her, you don't pull anybody's hair like that, and she looks at her son and says, son, I know that hurt, but you know what? She doesn't know what that feels like. Closes the door, and she walks out, and she starts to hear more blood-curdling screams. When she opens the door, the little boy is standing there pulling her hair and says, she does now. That's our gut reaction. That's what we want, an eye for an eye, to teach the lesson. We can understand where Abishai is and his loyalty. We can understand... Where Abishai is, and I mean, if anything else, you can say this man is decisive in his thinking. He just wants to take care of it and be done. But thank God he followed David's leadership and example. I want us to see also Ahithophel. He's in this story. He's about to start in verse 15. We remember Ahithophel. Uh, 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 you say I say that ten times. Ahithophel. 
when we consider Ahithophel, we, we learned a couple weeks ago who this man is. He was one of the men that was one of David's most trusted advisors. When we talk about how crisis shapes us, I mean, here is Ahithophel. He is angry, and we know why he's angry. He has a reason in our minds absolutely to be angry because this is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he looks at this man, David, whom he trusted, whom he had given good advice and good counsel all of these years. They were friends and he's looking at David and he has to be thinking, how could you do that to my granddaughter? How could you do that to Uriah? And when given the opportunity, he walks away from David and he begins to walk with Absalom. And he begins to take counsel, or give counsel to Absalom. And, and you need to remember that this was a big piece of how Absalom took the throne because the whole country, the kings, the leaders, the generals, they all looked at Ahithophel as if the words he spoke were the very words of God. That's literally what it'll say here in a minute. He was trusted. He was believed. And David knew last chapter that he had an issue because if Ahithophel was with Absalom, the people would listen. And remember, he sent his friend down there, Hushai, to go. And remember, he said to him, you got to thwart the advice of Ahithophel. And he prayed to the Lord, let it come off his foolishness, the things that he's about to say. Because he knew the people would listen. And so we enter into this character again. And look at what it says in verse 15. It says, Then Absalom, because he's in Jerusalem now, and all the people, the men of Israel, they entered Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Now it came about when Hushai the, uh, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to him, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So Absalom rightly looks at this guy and says, I thought you were with David. Why are you now coming to me saying, long live the king, long live the king. If you won't be a friend to David, you see his thinking. How can I trust your friendship to me? Where's your loyalty? He said to Absalom, no. For whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen... His I will be, and with him I will remain. He said, I believe. I mean, listen to his words. He tries to tell Absalom what he wants to hear. Listen, if God puts you here and the people put you here and they're happy with you here, then guess what? I'm going to serve the king who is sitting on the throne. Besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? He's saying, listen, you're David's son and you're sitting on the throne. You must be the rightful heir. Why would I not support you as I have served in your father's presence? So I will be in your presence. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go to your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house, then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his, into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So all the advice of Ahithophel regard, was regarded by both David and Absalom. I want you to see Ahithophel's vengeance. We understand vengeance. Vengeance is the desire to have revenge. Anybody ever been there? I mean, let's be honest. Has anybody ever been there? 
that you want them to feel it. You want to pay them back. You can imagine that this had been stirring in the heart of Ahithophel ever since what happened with Bathsheba. Because there was no forgiveness, because there was no reconciliation, because he and David never made right this issue, what began to fester, it always festers in unforgiveness. Bitterness that turns to hatred. Hatred that turns into a grudge, and a grudge which turns into this desire to get revenge. And you see, there is a part of us that says, I get that. But folks, just because we feel it doesn't mean that that's God's way. What does God desire? He desires reconciliation, doesn't he? I mean, when you think about all the sin that has occurred in this world, it is crazy to me that we run into scriptures that literally say that it's God's desire that no man perish. That literally, as we look through time and space and we see all the people that have lived in this life, you see, there's something about it that if I told you Jeffrey Dahmer was saved, you want to cringe. That if I told you Ted Bundy was saved, you'd want to cringe. That if I told you at some point Hitler repented, confessed his sins before God, brokenhearted, he sat there and repented of those sins and turned to Christ and sought his forgiveness. There's something in us that wants to say, God can't forgive that. That's not the gospel. And Ahithophel had the responsibility as a man of God to seek to make right the relationship that he had with David. And David had the responsibility to make right the relationship that he had with Ahithophel. And obviously, this had not taken place. Who knows on which side it hadn't taken place, but it hadn't been settled. And sometimes, rather than seeking forgiveness, you know how we deal with problems in our life? Sometimes with violence. Sometimes silence. You ever look at somebody and that's your punishment to them is, I ain't talking to you. We separate ourselves. We distance ourselves and we just refuse to offer them any kind of a relationship and our silence is the punishment. We try to punish them with resentment, indifference, But I want you to hear me when I say this, and, and trust me, I struggle like you struggle, that none of these please God. None of these will work to bring peace and forgiveness. And so we have a great responsibility, church, to be ministers of reconciliation. That means two people that are at war with each other, we bring about peace because that's what we're called to do. We're peacemakers, aren't we? We take the grace that's been given to us and we offer it to others. We take the mercy that's been given to us and we offer it to others. 
And Ahithophel, in all of his anger, his counsel to Absalom is basically this. We're going to burn every bridge with David. So go and sleep with his ten concubines. In the public, in the eyesight of everybody. Humiliate him. Put him in a position where he has no choice but for you to become odious to him. Leave him no choice but to have to come and attack And if he's going to have this throne, he's going to have to take it by force and kill you to do it. It's ironic that both of these men, Ahithophel and Absalom, this is where resentment gets us. This is what blind rage and hatred, this is where it takes us. It makes us become the very thing that we hated in the very beginning. It makes us become what we despised. Because remember what started this whole thing? Was the rape of Absalom's sister. And the answer in the end was for Absalom to go and rape ten women. You see why we said that An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. He couldn't even see himself anymore. Ahithophel, this godly man with godly advice, speaks not of reconciliation, not of there's got to be a way to come at peace with the house of David. No, in fact, what he says is burn every bridge. Do this so that that there's no turning back in this relationship. That was the advice of Ahithophel. This man who the grudge began, the anger began with what happened with his granddaughter is now giving this advice. Beware of blind rage, vengeance, unforgiveness, resentment. I want to close today with David's humility, which we're going to back up a little bit to grab it. One of the things that's so amazing about David's life in this is how God is continuing to make him more and more and more humble. You see, David has friends. They're all around him right now. I'm sure he feels the betrayal of so many others, but around him right now are other men who will lay down their lives for him. He doesn't have a shortage of counselors around him, but you see what David has learned is that ultimately, everything that we hear, where does it have to be tested? With the Lord. We can't just take blind advice, can we? Because we want to make sure that the advice that we're given is godly advice. When we hear the side of a story, we got to realize there's another side of a story, and we wait for the Lord to bring out the truth in circumstances. There is a reality, church, that we've got to learn to wait on the Lord to give us the answers that we are seeking. Because while he had many friends and many counselors, you know what his reputation was? That he humbly sought God's direction over and over and over again. I want you to see the forgiveness of David that is here. Because the reality is, we'd be like Abishai. We would be like Ahithophel. We want to take revenge. We want to silence our critics. We want to insist on fairness. We want to set everything right. 
But in humility, you know what David said? He said, listen, I don't need you to defend me. He says, I only really have one defense that matters, right? And it's, it's God. So let God make it right. Boy, that goes against the grain, doesn't it? So much of the teaching of God, we want God's Word packaged in a way that it just seems right in the world. Let me tell you, most of Jesus' teachings, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's like He took the way the world thinks and He turned it upside down and backwards. So that now He says, you know what you do with your enemy? Love them. And you're like, that's crazy. Does Jesus mean it when He says it? Did He live it? Bless those who curse you. You're blessed when you're completely destitute spiritually. You are blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness sake and for my name's sake. So the more you're persecuted, you are blessed. You see how backwards that is? When someone hits you on one side of the face, what do you do? They ask you to walk a mile, you walk two. Someone borrows something from you and doesn't return it. Do you see how often God's word, it stands in the face of what the world would say you and I should be doing. And it's no different in this story. Everything that David is doing shows the humility of a man who's willing to trust God and do things God's way. Because when we think about forgiveness in our own lives, listen, there is a way that we want to be forgiven. You and me, we want to be forgiven unconditionally. We want to be forgiven completely. And we want that forgiveness finished. No delay whatsoever. Right here, right now. But it's funny. And it's really not funny. Because the way that we want to receive forgiveness is not the way that we want to give forgiveness. And that's why Jesus would speak to this issue over and over and over and over again about forgiveness. Because He says, you are so prone to receive grace but never extend it. Receive mercy but never extend it. You want forgiveness but you don't want to give forgiveness. And so while we are given this unconditional Complete, finished forgiveness. You know how we want to give forgiveness? Completely conditional. I'll forgive you when you blank. If you do this, then I will do that. We put conditions on our love, on our forgiveness, on our mercy, on our grace, which by definition nullifies grace. We want to look at people and say, you know what, I, I, I forgive you, but right now I, I don't want to look at you. Well, let me go ahead and free you up to understand what the truth is. You haven't really what? You haven't really forgiven. Because forgiveness restores relationship. Remember that, right? Uh, do you want God to look at you and say, you know what, you disgust me. And while I'm willing to forgive you, I don't ever want to look at you. I don't ever want to see you. Aren't you glad that what he says is, I've cast your sin as far as east is from west. Never to what? Never to remember it again. And then what does he say? Come. Walk with me. I will dwell inside of you. You will be mine. You were an enemy. I call you a son. 
or a daughter, a friend. How far short do we fall in forgiveness? And you see, what I want to be sure of is that as the church of Christ, that we don't find ourselves in this position that we would rather sit in the judgment seat than the mercy seat. Aren't you glad there was a mercy seat? Where our sins could be covered. Where they could be forgiven and you want to say so badly, well then you know what? Let the price of that forgiveness fall on the one who committed it. Do you realize what you're asking? You see, when Jesus forgave us, the one who was wounded took the wounds and the punishment that we deserved. Isn't that crazy? Folks, we got to find a way to get there. Christ has changed your heart if you're in him so that you can get there. You don't have to settle for bitterness and anger and resentment and revenge and broken relationships. You don't have to settle for that anymore unless you choose to. But I'm going to tell you, it's not God's way. And you'll never find what you're looking for that way. 